Let's get into God's word this morning. <clears throat> really, uh, today we're in what well, we probably could say part three of John chapter five. A few weeks ago, we saw Jesus going there to Jerusalem, to the pool of Bethesda, the pool of grace and mercy. And remember, we saw a man with an infirmity uh, for 38 years who was by the pool of Bethesda because at a certain time, an angel would come down and stir the waters, and whoever went into the water first, uh, the scripture says, was healed. And this man had been there for a long, long time, and he never, he had, he had never got his healing because he had never got him first. So Jesus came along and asked him if he wanted to be healed. And uh, instead of just saying yes, the guy kind of had a lot of excuses. And then Jesus said, listen, take up your bed and walk. And the man absolutely responded in faith and got up, and God brought a healing to him. And this was just a glorious glorious miracle that many witnessed, uh, no doubt many rejoiced in, but there was a sect of religious elite uh, Pharisees and scribes there who took issue with the miracle that the Lord performed. Uh, Their issue wasn't that the man wasn't healed, it was clear that he was, but remember the issue was that the Lord had done that on the Sabbath. He had done that on Saturday, which was to be a day of rest. And Jesus, then last week we saw went into the fact that if you don't honor him, you don't honor the Father, and the Father has been working until this time, and indeed, Jesus has been working until this time, and yet it's not the Lord working as men labor and men need a day of rest, but it's him working and ministering to us to bring us into his rest. And here's a man with this infirmity, and the Lord brought him into rest physically, and yet these men in the hardness of their heart couldn't see that. And the ironic thing is that they started working and plotting and planning and having meetings and watching, and they actually were really breaking the Sabbath in their accusations against him. This morning, we're going to see the Lord continuing to address these individuals. Last week, again, we saw him make it clear that as the Father has been working, so have I been working. And now this morning, he goes into the witnesses that indeed he is the Son of God, that he indeed is equal with the Father, that indeed he is the Messiah of the world. And he gives them these witnesses, not for his sake, but for their sake. He gives these witnesses in wanting to see them repent. And these were the very individuals that were persecuting him, beginning to plot against him to kill him. And instead of the Lord coming back against them with harshness, the Lord comes back with them with the gospel and with evidences that he is who he says he is. This morning, we'll see him point to the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of his own works, the witness of his heavenly father, and the witness of his word. And then after him giving those witnesses, he points out the fact that he didn't come here to get honor from men. The Pharisees and these accusing the Lord were there to get honor from men. And we're going to see how much that blinds you when you walk with that heart of mind, wanting to appease men versus wanting to appease God. So a little bit of where we've been and where we're going. Let's start by reading verse 31 down through verse 40. And then we will, uh, uh, once we get there verse by verse, we'll finish out the chapter this morning, Lord willing, and, and we'll leave here hopefully blessed and built up in the Lord. So notice verse 31. Jesus is speaking here and he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me. I know that witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Verse 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these, and, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life." Now, notice how the Lord starts here. And again, and we'll touch more on this in a second. He's saying all this in desire that they would be saved, that they'd come to a place of salvation. They'd come to a place of faith. And beautifully, as the Lord's called us to come to him by faith, and we're saved by faith, by grace through faith, the Lord also knows that we are 
flesh and blood and so forth. And he gives us evidences to hang our hat on or to hang our faith upon. It's not so much a blind faith as people put forth there. Indeed, we have not seen his form and he is spirit and truth, but he has given us all these revelations of himself that through those revelations, we would come to a place of faith in him. And the Lord begins to lay out these revelations to them again in hopes that they would get saved. Now he starts by saying, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. This isn't Jesus saying that his witness of himself, that indeed he is God, the son of God, equal with God, that he is the Messiah, the savior of the world. He's not saying that his witness of himself isn't true because he made those proclamations of who he was. But what he is saying is if I just show up and make witness of myself, uh, you're not going to receive a witness that I give of myself. It'd be like if you went to fill out an application and you had to give three character witnesses and you listed yourself on all three of those lines. Listen, don't ever do that because you'll never get the job or whatever you're applying for. They're going to go, this is really strange and unusual. You you, you know, that's not going to be acceptable. Or if you go into court and uh, you know what, you need a witness of your person. You can't go and get on the stand to be a witness of yourself. Uh, that's found in our legal system, and that's actually found in the scripture. So much of our legal system is actually built on scripture, and it comes from scripture. Throughout God's word, it talks about everything be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he has committed. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, as Paul was ministering to those in Corinth, he basically quotes the scripture. He says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. And again, that can include yourself. There needs to be two or three witnesses outside of yourself to establish the truth of the matter. Now, notice verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, this is a reference to his father. This is a reference to, again, our heavenly father. And remember at the Lord's baptism, and in a minute here, we're going to get into John the Baptist because that's the first witness that he points to. Right now, he's mentioning the father, then he'll come back to the father. But remember at his witness or at his baptism, when John baptized Jesus, the father spoke from heaven. In fact, we read about this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when this happened, There were Pharisees, there were scribes, there were these religious zealots from Jerusalem that were out there in the Judean wilderness as there were massive crowds that came to listen to John and to listen to him prophesy and come to that baptism of repentance. So many of these individuals were there. And this was an established truth that had taken place upon the Lord's baptism. The Holy Spirit descended, and you heard this voice come from heaven. I mean, can you imagine being there and hearing these words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In a minute here, we're going to also see Jesus pointing to the testimony of the Father through the scriptures and fulfillment of scripture. But he doesn't get into that just yet. Again, he starts by referencing the Father. He'll come back to the witness of the Father. But before he does that, he points them to the witness of John the Baptist, who again baptized them when they heard the witness of the Father from heaven. And notice verse 33 through 35. He says, You have sent to John, and he has bore witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Now, John the Baptist, again, wasn't just some guy that showed up that they took lightly. John the Baptist was a mighty, mighty prophet. I don't think we always get that today because John didn't perform any miracles. There were no signs of wonders that came from him. 
He, again, simply was a simple individual who was out there, again, in that Judean wilderness. Remember with the, uh, the, the camel hair and the leather belt and the vow of a Nazarite, so wild hair on his head, he locusts and honey and so forth. And he was out there just calling men to repent. Really, that was the crux of his ministry. Acknowledge your sin and repent and get ready for the Messiah because he is about to come on the scene. And yet God was doing a phenomenal work and stirring the hearts of those in Israel to, again, go out there to John. And in his day, again, there had been none like him. In fact, Jesus said he was greater than all the Old Testament prophets. And one thing we got to understand is that these individuals that were coming against Jesus had themselves acknowledged that John was a prophet. The people acknowledged that John was a prophet sent by God, that indeed he spoke the words of God. So when Jesus refers to John the Baptist bearing witness of the truth that he was the Messiah, it wasn't him like saying, you know what, I got a cousin named John. If you go ask him, he'll tell you what I say about me is true. Because remember, John and Jesus were cousins. It wasn't that. That might not even be valid in a court of law. Well, that's his cousin. Of course, he's going to say these things. No, they didn't acknowledge him as Jesus's cousin. They acknowledge him as a prophet sent from God, according to the scriptures. So when Jesus references him, it would be like someone back uh, 1,500 years earlier referencing Moses, or before him referencing, uh, uh, referencing Abraham or Noah's witness concerning the situation. Again, they acknowledge him as a prophet. And indeed, John bore witness to Jesus. All those crowds have been coming out, and the Lord said, repent, get ready for the Messiah. And then when Jesus came, he said, behold, here is the Messiah of the world. This is the one that I have been talking about. In John 1, 15 through 18, a number of weeks ago, we saw this, where it says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is performed before me, and he was before me. So it's a reference that he is God. John was older than John, or John was older than Jesus, and yet he said he came before me. Why? Because he is God, the Son of God. In verse 16, he said, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So in saying he's the bosom of the Father, remember it was a reference, he's the only begotten Son of God. He is from the bosom of the Father, as God is the Father, God is the Son, and they are one. And then we also saw there in John 1, 29, John said concerning Jesus, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So a proclamation, this is the Messiah. This is the one who has come to live a sinless life, to go and to make a way of salvation for us sinners. Without a doubt, he made that proclamation. Now, it seems as well that even after John made that proclamation, when the Lord came on the scene that they heard, from verse 32, it seems that even after that, or verse verse 33, excuse me, that they sent to John. Again, Jesus came, John said, this is the one. And then remember, Jesus' ministry began to increase. John's began to shrink up. John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And now Jesus, again, was baptizing in the Judean wilderness. And more came out to Jesus. And Jesus now is moving about, performing miracles and proclaiming the gospel. So it seems as the Pharisees began to get upset with Jesus and saw him healing, you know, and so forth, they went and they said, go find John and confirm, is this indeed the Christ? Because he says here, you sent men to John. Now, what's interesting about this is at this point, John is probably in a prison cell somewhere. Because remember, he would be arrested for calling out Herod's sexual immorality and that he took his brother's wife and they were in adultery. And so he was in prison. They went and they asked, John, is this the Messiah? And he said, yes, it is, which even makes John's witness even more valid because ultimately John is in prison for proclaiming the Christ. And if John was wanting to get out of prison, all he had to say is, no, he's not the Christ at all. But it makes his witness even more credible and that he was willing to be in prison and eventually be beheaded for his testimony that Jesus indeed is the Christ. So notice verse 34. 
Again, he says, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So Jesus is saying here, I don't need John to confirm who I am. Jesus is saying, I know who I am. I know that I am God. I know that I'm the Messiah. I don't need men to confirm that to make me feel better about myself. Listen, we need to know who we are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And we should encourage one another in who we are in Christ Jesus. But I don't need men to come and tell me who I am in Christ Jesus. God's word tells me that. And that's why we want to be in the scriptures. And Jesus is saying here, I don't need someone to come along and pat me on the back to affirm who I am. I know who I am, but I point you to his testimony because you acknowledge him as a prophet and I want to see you get saved. I want to see you come to a place of faith. And this is amazing when you consider that Jesus is talking to the very men who were persecuting him, the very men who were plotting to kill him. And I just put on my notes, wow, with an exclamation point. And then I wrote, Lord, help us. Because how many times are we in a place where we have individuals that are coming against us in life? Do any of you have individuals like that in your life? You would even say, yes, they're an enemy. They're a persecutor. They're a, today you might call them a hater, you know? And how many times, though, are we tempted to return evil for evil and we find ourselves falling into that rut of doing that? And yet you don't see Jesus doing that at all. And these very individuals would actually end up crucifying him on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus knew they would do that. Yet despite that, he is willing to stand there and minister to them while they are coming against him. Why? Because he is wanting them to get saved. And in fact, again, as many times we want our enemies to be struck down, we need to remember that Jesus was struck down for his enemies. He was even struck down for us when we were enemies of him in our sin. So Lord, we need your help in that, that we would pray for those, that we would want to see those coming against us get born again and get saved. Lord, help us. Can we say amen to that together? And then he says to him, again, verse 35 about John, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were, you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So again, it's the Lord affirming the fact that they acknowledged him as a prophet, that they said, yes, he is a burning lamp. Again, what was burning in him? The Holy Spirit. What was burning in him? The light of God Almighty. Remember, as a baby in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was obvious to everybody uh, he is a lamp, and the light of him is the Lord. Again, he came according to the scriptures. He came with a great anointing upon him. And the Lord says, for a time, you were willing to rejoice in his light. Again, this bright light. And yet, the time came when they didn't rejoice in his light. They didn't rejoice in that lamp. After the hype settled, after his ministry began to diminished, so to speak, from man's perspective, though it didn't in God's perspective. As the crowds got bigger following Jesus and smaller following John, it says here again that they moved away from rejoicing in his ministry. No doubt they begin to say, well, he's not as important now. Look at the crowds dwindling over here. It's, it's, it's you know, it, uh, we, we really don't need to heed him anymore. After all the excitement had kind of gone away and the dust had settled. I like how Warren Wiersbe put it in his commentary. It says, John was a burning and shining lamp. Jesus is the light. And the Jewish people were excited about his ministry. However, their enthusiasm cooled and nobody lifted a finger to try to deliver John when he was arrested by Herod. Again, they were rejoicing him. Now he's in prison and no one even cares. I mean, our, our, it just shows how temperamental we are, right? How we jump on the new thing and everyone's excited, but when the excitement's gone, why? Because it's no longer a thrill to the flesh. It's no longer a new thing to our sight and to our ears and to our taste and to our touch and maybe to our smell. We've gotten used to it now. We want to then move on to the next thing. And it's sad because you see this testimony so often through scripture, down through history, even to today, where the Lord talked about this. How there's so many people, they'll receive the gospel or they receive the truth of God's word. But then when other things begin to come up, 
and there's other things that seem new, exciting to them and so forth, they begin to wane and waver and drift in their walk with the Lord. Uh, Jesus talked about the sower and the seeds and where those seeds fell. And it's a great example of this. In Mark 4, 16 through 19, Jesus says, These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. And it's like those that went out to John. Immediately they heard his word and they received it with gladness. He says, And they have no root in themselves. And so only endure for a short time afterward when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So they hear the word and they're excited about that. They're excited about the gospel. But if you're going to walk with the Lord, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be some sufferings that come with that. Now, God uses that for our good. And he says, these people, though, there's a segment of people, they rejoice for a short time, but when their faith is put to the test, immediately they stumble and they're shown they don't really have a real faith when it's put to the test. And then he says, now, these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and I think this is huge, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So again, they're excited about the Lord, all oh, the, you know, kind of this new thing. I'm excited. But as, you know what, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things and the cares of this world come in, again, they're not rejoicing in the Lord anymore. They said, I want to rejoice in other things. And I think that's huge. It paints it's a picture. You know what? Yeah, I acknowledge the Lord, but, you know, not so much now. The thrill is gone. And so now I want to go pursue other things. And we need to take heed to this. Listen, there's many warnings about this in Scripture. We got to understand, if our walk with the Lord is about central things, it's about sight and, you know, sound and smell and touch and taste. Yeah, with anything in the flesh, uh, the, the eye of man is never satisfied. We're going to move on to the next thing. But the Lord is spirit. And we need him every day to refresh us. And when we're really abounding or abiding in him, we're going to abound in him. But listen, that takes discipline. That takes being steadfast. That takes keeping your flesh in check that wants to go wander off and go after other things. We get many warnings concerning this in the word. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Or the King James Version says, lest they slip Leslie slip out of our hands the truth we have heard or we slip away from our walk with the Lord. Later in Hebrews 6, 11, it says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That word sluggish, it means lazy or dull or slothful. Let me ask you this morning, have you grown lazy in your walk with the Lord? Have you grown slothful? Is it a thing where you've put him on the side and you're drifting after other things, seeking them first versus seeking the Lord first? Sadly, listen, in 25 years of ministry, I've seen this happen firsthand over and over and over again. It's not that I know anyone's hearts, but you look at the fruit of the situation, and I've seen it for many what we might call parishioners, to even many, many pastors that I've known over the years. Many pastors I partner with, I've ministered with on different levels and in different places that for a time they were on fire for the Lord. They indeed had that light burning in them. And then as the, 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 the toil of ministry and sufferings of persecutions and then other things came up that you know it seems simpler and easier and more rewarding to the flesh they began to drift to the point where i have people and individuals that i knew once were professing believers and even ministers and pastors that now they even deny the faith now they've even rejected the lord because they've drifted into other areas and other things and ultimately listen only the lord knows their heart I don't know if they're prodigals that have drifted and, and they're going to come to, you know, at the, the realization of truth and chastisement. I don't know if they never knew the Lord in the first place that they went out from us because they're not of us. Only God knows that. But I do know a couple things that, hey, I want to pray for them. 
And I also never want to make the mistake of puff out my chest and say, boy, that's not me. But instead cry out to God, oh, Lord, let me not fall into that place because I know I'm able and capable of doing that. And so are you. And we better acknowledge that. And we better acknowledge, again, these warnings and exhortations in the scriptures. Now, verse 36, the Lord says, but I have a greater witness than John. So again, here's John's witness you acknowledge John, you even rejoiced in his light for a while, but I even have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is saying here, by the miracles, by the works of my hand, these are evidences that I am the Messiah. And we'll see here in a minute that there were many prophecies about the works of the Lord that he did affirming that he was the Messiah. But really what Jesus is saying here is you're going to know them by their fruits. And by their fruits, you're going to be able to tell who someone really is. Again, Jesus taught about this in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 7, 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. And so Jesus is saying, by my fruits, you know that I am who I say that I am by my works. And listen, these weren't only just works of miracles and healings and seas being calm, but this is, this is the works of him perfectly honoring God's word, always walking in accordance to the scriptures, not only not doing what he shouldn't do according to the will of the Father, but always doing what he was called to do according to the will of the Father and doing it with a cloak of humility, not with an arrogance or a boastfulness or, you know, a better than thouness. And this was, I don't know, that's a real, you know, grammatically correct statement, better than thouness, but absolutely representing the Father. In fact, remember, they had just seen a miracle the Lord performed there on the Sabbath. This is all still the, 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 the same conversation and the same time on the day the Lord had healed this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years there at the pool of Bethesda. The Lord had said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. It says, and immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. John 5, 8 and 9. They had saw that. And he says, you see the works that I am performing, and they bear witness of who I am. And listen, that should be the case in our lives as well. You really want to know who you are? Then look at the fruit of your life. Is there fruit in your life? And if there's not fruit in your life, then you need to see that either, you know, maybe you don't know the Lord. I hope you do. But I know even times as Christians, we get into a place where we're not abiding in the Lord. And if we're not abiding in Him, we're not going to bear fruits of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be able to examine our lives honestly. And when our works don't represent Him, we need to get on our place, our face and draw closer to him and draw near to him because our flesh cannot produce the fruits of the spirit of God. And so again, in Jesus's ministry, you see him performing these works that the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would perform. Way back in Isaiah, about 700 years earlier before Christ came, Isaiah 35, 5, it says, concerning the Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. And indeed, all of these things took place in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at another point in Jesus' ministry in John four sixteen through uh, verse 19, he even refers to a passage in Isaiah and Basically, he reads it there in the synagogue as a proclamation of those things being fulfilled right in their midst. There in Luke 4, 16, it says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, 
And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And so the Lord made that proclamation. I am doing those things that the scripture says the Messiah would do. And notice again, back in verse 36, he says, for the works which the Father has given me to finish the very works that I do. And what was the ultimate work that the Lord came to finish? The work of the cross of Calvary. Remember there as he hung on the cross, taking the wrath to us, one of the last things he said was, it is finished. I finished the work. I made that way of salvation. I have atoned for the sin of sinners. And indeed, three days later, he would resurrect from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, that whoever would humble their heart, turn from the God of their belly of doing as they will, to say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, indeed, would receive salvation. Let me ask you, if you called on him today, can you say amen to that? Praise God for his finished work there at the cross of Calvary. Now, notice verse 37. So he's got the witness of John, the witness of his works. And then verse 37, he says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me, and you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So now Jesus points to the testimony of his Father. And indeed, at his baptism, the Father had spoke, and they had heard, but they hadn't listened and we've talked about this many times, how you can hear the word, but not really hear the word. When you're really hearing the word, you're in a place of wanting to heed the word. And he, they heard the word of the Father, but they did not want to heed the word of the Father. They wanted to try to explain away the word of the Father as they were in rebellion against the word of the Father. And so he says, listen, you didn't see him because you haven't seen his form. Indeed, he is spirit and truth. But you have heard him, you've heard his voice from heaven. But the Lord is also pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ revealed the words of heaven uh, of his Father here on earth. Remember, we've talked about this in John, how Jesus is the witness of the Father here on earth. And if you see the Son, you see the Father. So really, again, God standing right in front of them in flesh as he willfully came and took on the form of a man to die for our sins. And not only did they not heed the voice of the Father who they heard, but here's Jesus standing right before them, and they're not heeding him either. Boy, you talk about rebellion. All these witnesses are stacked up right in front of them, and yet they're rejecting him. And we look around our world today, and there's so many witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet men reject him over and over again. There's the witness of the Spirit of God convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's the witness of creation around us that absolutely screams there is a creator. And how ironic that is science, real science that can be tested, shows more and more the, the, the great you know, details of creation from DNA and so forth, and even the things now that we see make up DNA. And you know we keep getting deeper and deeper into the makeup of the world around us and it just shows more and more design and intelligence and how things hold together and yet as those things are revealed more and more you see a a a world of people in rebellion where there's a great segment of them that more and more reject the evidences laid out right before them it's amazing again we have the evidence of scripture ourselves that prophesies what Christ would do and what Christ did and all the prophecies even in the unfolding of the world today. And yet so many people like these religious zealots reject those witnesses. Oh, I hope that's not you. Listen, your soul hangs in the balance if you haven't called on his name. Verse 38 here. He says, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. And so the Lord says here, if you had the word abiding in your heart, you would believe because I'm the one that has been sent by him and Jesus had the word abiding in him. So if the word was abiding in them, they indeed would heed his witness. But next we see them rejecting the witness of the word of God. We want to make sure we're not doing that in our lives. If we're going to be true disciples of Jesus, 
then we need to be true disciples of the scriptures. Listen, if you reject the Son of God, you're rejecting the Word of God. And if you reject the Word of God, you're rejecting the Son of God. John 8, 31, Jesus said, he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Sadly, there's a lot of people running around the world today that claim to be disciples of Jesus, yet they reject the word of God. They reject the instruction of scripture. They reject the truth of scripture. Or they take scripture and they try to twist it and take it out of context. They won't read it in its full setting, and yet they say they're disciples of the Lord. Let's make sure that's not us. The Bible even talks about this increasing more and more as the day of the Lord approaches. First Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And then it says, speaking lies in hypocrisy versus speaking the truth of God's word. They come up with their own conclusions. Doctrines of demons that, again, always want to appeal to those five senses and to the rebellion of man to do as thou wilt, to do their own thing. Again, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. We've looked at this verse a lot of times, but it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And you see it happening. I'm a disciple of Jesus, some will say, but I don't heed his word. I don't want to walk in his word. I want to be led by fables, which are stories, which are, again, made up truths. But he gives us this exhortation of verse 5, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Now, notice verse 39. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And so again, Jesus has pointed out the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of his works, the testimony of his father, and now the testimony of the scriptures. And he says, you search the scriptures. You're a people who would say, yes, we're rooted in the Bible. We have Bible studies and we teach the Bible. And he says to him, you think in the scriptures you have eternal life. But in these scriptures, you see the testimony that I'm actually the one that gives eternal life. See, the problem was, is they were reading the Bible from a wrong starting point. They were reading it thinking, hey, listen, we're okay. And if we do the right things, we can find salvation through what we do. He says, you thank you. In other words, you're thinking outside of him. They were thinking in the scriptures, they had found a list of do's and don'ts. And because they were doing the do's and not doing the don'ts, indeed, now we have found eternal life. And they had a great following in this. Many people wanted to hear that. This is one of the reasons why cults are so popular today. Because cults say in yourself, you can find eternal life through your good works. And that appeals to the pride of man. And the Lord says here, if you were really hearing the word of God, if you were really reading it as it is written, you would see that the word points to me. The word points to you being a sinner, and the word points to me being the Savior. And throughout the Old Testament, which was the only testament that they had compiled at this point, over and over and over again, the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, at the beginning there were man's sin. Remember, God went and found man and said, a savior is going to come through the seed of woman. And the serpent will bruise his heel, but that seed of woman is going to crush the serpent's head. That was a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. That spoke of Jesus. Think about the Passover when they left uh, Exodus there. And remember, it was the shed blood of the lamb that opened the door for them to leave. And then Jesus shows up. And what does John say? Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Passover speaks of Jesus. The very Sabbath that Jesus was healing on speaks of Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You look at again at Isaiah's 
uh, word and the testament of Isaiah's prophecies. And we read Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, where it talks about he was bruised for our iniquities, that he was, you know, chastised for us. It speaks of Jesus. Think as well in Isaiah, it says that a virgin will come and give birth to a son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Over and over and over again. If you come out with us on Wednesday night as we're going through the Old Testament, you know this is true. Every week, no matter what passages we are in, we see Jesus Christ on page after page after page of the Old Testament. And yet again, they were not willing to lay down their pride and come to Jesus for salvation, thinking we'll find salvation in ourself. Verse 41 Through 47, Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the father there is one who accuses you moses in whom you trust for if you believe moses you would believe me for he wrote about me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words the problem with these guys is they wanted honor for men and they thought they were worthy of honor for men because of the way they honored themselves And Jesus says, listen, make no mistake here. I did not come here to get honor from men. God does not need honor from men to complete him. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And in your life, if you want to find real joy in your life, it's not going to be found. We all need to hear this today. Open our ears. Real joy will not be found seeking honor from men. Real joy is found in obedience to the Father. Real joy is found in relationship with God. And if you're going to have a relationship with God and you're going to seek to honor the Father or to obey the Father, you're not going to always get honor from men. In fact, there's going to be a lot of men that are going to dishonor you because if you're doing the will of the Father, it's going to go against the grain. And Jesus says, I didn't come here to get honor from men. In fact, we read in Philippians 2 that not only did he not get honor from men, come to not get honor from men, he came to make himself of no reputation. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And as this is laid out there in Philippians 2, in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we are not to live to get honor from men, but to come to lay down our life, to make ourselves of no reputation. Because if you're going to live to get honor from men, again, it's not gonna, it is not going to satisfy your heart. You're not going to find a lasting joy there because you know what happens? You get a little bit of honor from men. And instead of saying, okay, I got honor from men. Now I can go sit down. You know what it does? It creates a craving to want to get more honor from men. How can I get more honor from men? How can I build on this and so forth? And that's what these Pharisees and these individuals did. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 5, he says, but all, all their works they do to be seen by men. They want to get honor for men. And the Lord says, I didn't come to get honor for men. I'm not like you. I'm not in that place that you're in. And then he says here again in verse 42, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. Because if they had the love of God in them, they would be seeking to obey God, not get honor for men. For I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now, this is huge. Again, the love of God is found in keeping the commandments of God, which they weren't doing, though they thought they were doing. Remember, we saw last week, they were breaking the Sabbath while accusing the Lord of breaking the Sabbath. The greater command from God is to repent and believe, and they refuse to do that. And Jesus says here, I'm here in my father's name. I'm the Messiah and you don't receive me, but there's another who's going to come in his own name and him you will receive. And this is a reference to the Antichrist. This is a reference to the end of days. This is the reference of the one who will come and say, I'm the savior of the world. And listen, we got a world that is right for the Antichrist that is beginning to look around saying, we need a savior. We need someone who can unite us. We need someone who can bring all these things together. We need someone who can bring peace in the Middle East. And this individual the Bible prophesies about is going to show up and say, I have the perfect 
peace plan. And Israel's going to be right in the middle of it. Now, praise God, in the middle of that peace plan, they're going to see that he's not the Messiah and God's going to bring all Israel into salvation, not because of them, but because of him and who he is. But there's a great lesson for us in what the Lord is saying here, a great practical application, a great warning for us. We need to hear this today. Listen, if you are living for the honor of man over living for obeying God, you're going to be led into great deception. You want to walk around in deception? You want to be in a place where you're vulnerable to lies, where you're vulnerable to be led astray? I don't want to be in that place. Do you want to be in that place? Again, these individuals were living for the honor of man and the Messiah. The Savior of the world is standing right before them in the name of the Father, and they could not see him. He just healed the man, paralyzed for 38 years. John, this incredible prophet of the day who was solid top to bottom said yes this is the messiah they heard the voice of the father from heaven and the scriptures over and over and over again proclaimed the christ and he was fulfilling all those prophecies but because of their pride and because they lived for the honor of men versus humbly wanting to obey the father they could not see him and the lord says yet when the antichrist comes in his own name him you will follow why because the antichrist comes in the spirit that they were walking in themselves to bring honor to man. I think all of us fall into this trap in different areas where we want to be honored by others. Indeed, it is a trap. Now listen, if you get honor from men, that's okay. The Bible says, let another sing your praise, not yourself. But if that's what you're living for, if you're doing what you're doing, first and foremost, to get honor for men versus obeying God, that you are vulnerable to great, great deception. Almost done here. Verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Again, we just expanded on that. They wanted praise from men. They weren't living a life to want to hear from the Father. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Let's make sure that's not us. Verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Remember, the Lord didn't come to condemn. You don't have to condemn what's already condemned. Even as he's before them. He's before them wanting to see them saved, wanting to see them repent. And he says, listen, don't think I came to accuse you to the Father. There, there, there's one who accuses you. It's the one you trust, Moses. Because what came by Moses' hand? The law of God. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make an idol and worship it. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath. You shall honor your father and mother. You shouldn't murder or steal or lie. Commit adultery or covet. We've transgressed those commands in practice and in our hearts over and over and over again. And these guys had transgressed those laws over and over and over again. And yet they trust in those laws that they broke to save them. Can you imagine going to court for committing some crime? You're a clock doing 95 and a 35. That is a crime if you're going that fast. And you're hoping that the law will deliver you? You better start looking for a loophole. You're going to trust in the law that says this is a 35-mile-an-hour zone and you were clocked in video doing 95? You're going to trust in that to get you out of that ticket? That's what they're doing here. And he says the one whom you trust actually is the one that's going to accuse you and find you condemned of sin. Then verse 46 and 47, he says, but if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. Again, Jesus is saying, Moses in the Old Testament over and over again, it spoke of the Messiah. It spoke of Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. But if you don't believe him, if you don't want to believe the writings of Moses, if you don't want to believe Genesis, how are you going to believe me? 
Now this brings forth an issue that's huge today in Christianum, where the Old Testament is under great, great attack. Where the first 11 chapters of Genesis is under great attack, and you got these individuals showing up that are neither true scientists nor theologians, yet they have a great following and honor for men saying, oh boy, you know, these things really didn't happen as they were written. Yet Jesus affirms it all over and over again. Jesus talks about a six-day creation. Jesus talks about Noah. Jesus talks about Jonah. Jesus talks about all those things and affirms us, but these guys show up and all of a sudden they think they're smarter than Jonah or than Jesus and Jonah too to boot. And, and Jonah was an idiot, so that's pretty bad. <laughs> And Satan knows this is an effective tactic to destroy people's faith. Because you see, the New Testament's built on the old, and the new is the fulfillment of the old. And yet it's being attacked at all these different turns. Andy Stanley, a very, again, popular pastor today, that gets honor from a lot of men, recently said in one of his sermons that it's time to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. It's time to put it by the wayside. We don't need that anymore because it brings confusion. And really what he's talking about is, listen, the law of God in the Old Testament that shows us we're sinners. We got to get away from that. Let's just get to the message that God just loves everybody. And indeed, he loves everybody. He loves everybody so much that he shows us we're condemned to send a savior to show us that he made that way of salvation. But that's not what he's getting to in it. What he's getting to is let's just make this convenient so we can walk in rebellion and still say we're followers of Jesus. There was a guy the generation before Andy Stanley named J. Vernon McGee, and this is what he said about this. He said, when a man begins to make an attack upon the Old Testament, watch out. He really is making a subtle attack on the Lord Jesus Christ. I am afraid that there are many men who very foolishly begin to question the Old Testament and do not realize what they are doing. It's like the man at the insane asylum who was digging out the foundation. A man came by and asked, why are you trying to dig out the foundation? Don't you live in the building? Yes, he answered, but I live upstairs. I'm afraid that a great many foolish people that say, but I live in the New Testament. My friend, the Old Testament is a foundation. Our Lord said, if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? They both go together. Let's stand up and close in prayer. Lord God, we just praise you this morning. We give you glory and honor. We just thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't just show up and said, hey, listen, I'm the one, follow me. But you came here according to the scriptures. You came here with great witnesses. You came here and did the work that it was prophesied you would do, that you went to the cross and you died for our sins and you rose from the grave. I would hope and pray this morning, God, that we would be a people drawing closer and closer to you, God. I would hope and pray, God, we would not be found a people drifting and growing sluggish. But even this morning, God, you would knock the rust off and you would fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit that we would have that light in us to be a lamp to a world around us that just desperately, desperately needs you, Lord. Listen, if you're here today and you haven't called on Christ Jesus, today is a day of salvation. If you are putting hope in your own works, listen, the scripture condemns all of us outside of Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, I know I'm condemned. I know I've broken the law and I've broken it so much. God will never forgive or wash me. Listen, that is not truth. That is not scripture. The Lord says, whoever would call upon my name will be saved. Whoever. It's all encompassing. This morning, if you're saying, Steve, yes, I I do believe. I I do want to respond to Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. I I would love the privilege to pray with you today to, to confirm that. We're not saved through a prayer. We're we're saved by grace through faith. But today, if you're stepping out of faith and 
want to step out of faith and ask Jesus to be your Lord, I would love to affirm that and stand with you in prayer today. Those of you that know the Lord, as I do each week, I want to invite you to pray with any today that would be asking Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. And if you've asked the Lord in your heart recently, ask him today, then sign up to be baptized out there. Let's, let's uh, you know what, even make that even more known to the world around us. But today, if that's you, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I've broken your law, and I need forgiveness. I do believe you died on the cross, rose from the grave to make a way of salvation for me. I receive that today. Be my Lord and my Savior all of my days go before me at every turn Lord we just thank you for these that have prayed that prayer shine your face upon them Lord let us lift our voice to you in one accord let us finish well in worshiping our king we just thank you Lord let's, let's worship them as we finish here
Amen? Amen. Moms, grab your jawbreakers. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.